when I, when I speak, I never know how long it's going to be. But I will tell you that I have 12 pages of notes. And I have, uh, well, I forgot to count how many scripture references I have, but it's a lot. Because when I speak, I like to use a lot of word. There's no substitute for the word. You know, we can say all kinds of words of our own, but it never takes the place of the word of God. So I like to use a lot of scriptures for when I speak. I also like to have a little joke before I start because it helps loosen me up a little bit. So if you've heard this before, laugh anyway. It makes me feel better. <clears throat> there, was a, there was a church service in a, in a small church, or a church, where they made an announcement at the beginning of the service that there would be a board meeting right after the service and expected all the board members to be there. So after the close of the meeting, they all gathered down in the front of the front of the church to hear what the pastor had to say, and they noticed that there was a stranger in their midst, somebody that had never been there before. And so the pastor asked the man, didn't you understand that this was a board meeting, a meeting of the board? And the man said, he thought about it a minute, and he said, well, yeah. He said, and after this sermon, I think I'm as bored as anybody in this meeting. And hopefully that won't be the case when I'm finished. Um, the title of my message is, Grace Is and Faith Works. Gosh, what did I do? I guess it wasn't me. <clears throat> and uh, the primary scripture for this word is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Oh, and I, I have to mention that we have a technology problem in that uh, we're not able right now to put the scriptures up on the screens. So you're all going to have to use your Bibles or your phones or your iPads or whatever it is that you use for your Bible. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't, I don't belittle that. I use the, the uh, Bible on my phone a lot. But it's important sometimes for us to put our eyes on the Word, for us just to look at it and not necessarily have technology do all the work for us, okay? So, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Everybody there? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace is, faith works. You know, there's always been a big debate in Christianity about faith and works and you, we all know that we're not saved by works. It's not what we do that gets us saved, but we do have to do something. Grace is free. It's available to everybody, and it's enormous. We can't begin to really comprehend the enormity of this one word in Christianity. So grace is available to everybody. And we're going to go into what grace really is in just a few minutes. But it's available to everybody, to the saved and the unsaved alike. It's just a little different process that goes on to access that grace. If, if a person is saved, 
They just have to believe enough to act on it. If they're not saved, it's the same process, only there's, a, there's an additional step in that they have to believe what the Word says about Jesus Christ paying the penalty for our sin. And as a result of that, we believe that enough to act upon it. And you act upon it by confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that he died for you and that as a result of that, you have an opportunity to be saved. So it's available to everybody. Well, in, in the Bible, there are 128 references to grace in the New Testament and only 32 in the Old Testament. And almost all the epistles start with a call for grace. Grace is, uh, I think, a very misunderstood word. Uh, you know, you sit down to a meal and somebody says grace. That has no bearing on really what grace is. You say a prayer and receive the grace of God by being able to eat the food that's set before you. But the actual act is not grace. When I began to study grace and started to comprehend the enormity of it, I decided to look up every definition I could find. So I'm going to read some to you. From the Strong's Concordance, it defines... I'm, I'm having a little ring up here. Are you all hearing that, or is it just me? Because of where I'm standing. No? Okay. From the Strong's Concordance, it's defined as a benefit, a gift, joy, liberality, pleasure, unmerited favor. And that certainly doesn't begin to describe all that grace is. From the Nelson Bible Dictionary, it's defined as favor or kindness with, shown without regard to the worth or merit of the one who receives it. That's closer. And in spite of what that same person deserves. And we all know that what we really deserve is hell, right? Because none of us are perfect. And without the, the saving grace that comes to us through the gift of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we all deserve hell. So, from the American Heritage Dictionary, it says, Mercy, clemency, favor rendered by one who need not do so. You know, the grace of God, he doesn't need to do that for us. He does it because he loves us enough to do it for us. Immunity or reprieve divine love or protection, the state of being protected or sanctified by God, and excellence of power granted by God. I searched a lot more sources, but by the time I got through with all of that, you know, they just expounded more on the things that we already talked about here, so we'll let those suffice. But I began with the old acronym, which says, God's favor, let's see, God's riches at Christ's expense. The acronym. Christ, God's riches at Christ's expense. And all of those definitions combined don't begin to describe the enormity of what this grace is. But I think it'll get us started. And there's an important, there's an important point here that we're going to talk about a little more in a minute. But... There's no way to earn grace or to buy it. It's expensive, but we don't have to pay for it. John 3.16 says it all. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
he gave his only begotten son. What an awful price to pay. I can't even imagine. I have two sons, two grandsons, a great-grandson and a great-granddaughter. And I cannot even imagine giving one of those my family, and Jesus was God's, is God's family, to pay the price that Jesus paid. And Jesus did pay an awful price. We all know about that if you've ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ. It's horrendous what he went through. And I believe that that doesn't begin to describe the agony that he went through. So Jesus paid a terrible price, but God did too. He sent his own son, his own beloved son, to go through all that agony and distress for you and me. Awful price. I also searched to find out what Jesus had to say about grace, but there wasn't a single time that he used the word grace or any definition thereof in, a, in another language. It's not there. So let's look for a minute at John, Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chapter 1, verse 14. And it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, and of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. We see from this passage that grace and truth are available to us only through Jesus Christ. All the benefit that we derive from the grace of God is available to us only through Jesus Christ because he paid the price and God paid the price. So we could say it this way, Jesus is grace and truth. Jesus is grace and truth. And so all that we have available to us comes to us through Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. As I said before, grace is available to everybody. But it's only attainable through Jesus Christ and your relationship with him. Let's, uh, and as I said, Jesus has never used the word, but he, that doesn't mean that he didn't understand grace. Let's look for a minute at Luke chapter 15. 15. Verse 11. Are you there? <clears throat> then he said, Jesus said, and if you have a red-letter Bible, you'll notice that the next verses are in red. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far, far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he, the citizen, sent him into his fields to feed swine, which for a Jewish young man, that's about the worst fate he could imagine. 
and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. This is a parable of Jesus, and it's a demonstration of grace. This young man didn't deserve anything from his father, not even to be used as a servant. But his father felt such love and compassion for this prodigal son that he forgave him all, took him into his bosom, kissed him, clothed him with the best clothing, made a party for him, and they all had a great time. That's a small demonstration of the love and compassion and forgiveness that God has through us, through Jesus Christ our Savior. Remember, that's the only thing, only way you can receive the grace that God has available to you. Here's the Father demonstrating on a small scale what we receive from our loving Father. It's important to note that in this parable, this son did everything that, that you could think of to spurn the love and, 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 and compassion that his father had for him. But here is this father who loves his son so much that nothing he can do can make his father love him any less. This parable is a reflection of us. If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, there's nothing you can do that can make God love you any less. Because when he looks at you, he looks through the veil of Jesus Christ. And that's how he sees us. That's how he sees us every time we look at us, no matter what we've done. He loves us. It really has nothing to do with what this young man deserves. It only has to do with the Father's love and compassion for him. That's a small demonstration of grace, but it, even that doesn't begin to help us to understand what grace really is. There are over 7,000 promises in the Bible for God's people. 7,000. Most of us probably couldn't name 20. It's because we haven't invested the time and effort to find out what those promises are. You can't avail yourself of something that you don't know about. Well, I've got a list here. Well, some time ago I did a study uh, on all the references that I could find 
in the New Testament particularly, but some in the Old Testament too, of where it talks about in him or through him or by him and lists all the things that <clears throat> are available to us through Jesus Christ and his blood. And I have, I have a few. I'm just going to give you a few. And I'll give you a reference to go with it. I'm going to go through them real fast so you won't have time to look them up. I have them written out. But if you're interested, you can note the address and go search it out for yourself. Number one, of course, is that we are saved through Jesus Christ. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Uh, for, that's uh, Romans 10, 9, and 10. And 1 Corinthians 1, 30, sanctified. The definition of sanctified is to be set apart for sacred use or to make holy. <coughs> and the word says that we are sanctified. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30 We're forgiven. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Justified. Romans 3.24 and the definition of justified is to be freed of the guilt and penalty attached to sin. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're reconciled, Romans 5.11. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The definition is to reestablish relationship or to make compatible. We're conquerors, Romans 8, 37. Yet in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. We're wise, 1 Corinthians 4, 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. You're free, Galatians 5, 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. We're rich, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our, your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. We're God's elect. Colossians 3.12 Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. We're heirs and joint heirs with Jesus. Romans 8.17 And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. That's just a few. That's just a few. I have about 30 more here, but I don't want to bore you. We all know that, have heard many, many times the, the hymn, Amazing Grace. And that's a beloved hymn by all of Christianity. But generally, when we hear it sung, we don't hear the whole song. We don't hear the whole hymn. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven stanzas to that hymn. And usually we only hear two or three. And I'm going to read the lyrics to you because I think they're powerful. I would sing them for you, but I want somebody to be around when I finish. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Well, anybody saved remember the first hour that they were saved. It's an amazing time. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I've, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will by my shield and portion be, as long as life endures. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear the shame. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. When we've been here 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. The man who wrote that had lost most all of his family in a shipwreck. And through all that, he was able to rest in God's grace. So I want to shift gears a little bit now. Oh, I've got a lot of time. We may be here for a long time. <laughs> so grace is. It's just there. It's always there. It's never not there. It's always there, and it's always available to God's children. To those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior, it's always available. But it isn't automatic. It's there. But we have to do something to access it. Grace is, but faith works. What is faith? Faith is a confident, confident belief in a truth, value, or trustworthiness of a person, idea, or thing. It's a belief that does not rest on logical proof. It's loyalty to a person or thing. <clears throat> Those are definitions. <clears throat> and the world talks a lot about faith, but they don't know much about faith. Sometimes you'll meet somebody and they may say, what's your faith? They're not really talking about faith. They're talking about what's your denomination or what is your belief system. But they're not really talking about faith. A lot of people have faith in faith. That means they say, I have faith. And they're just waiting for faith to do something for them. Faith without works is dead, it says in James. James 2.26, for, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. For faith to have value, it's got to do something. And when you're born again... You can believe 
in Jesus Christ and, and claim that you're saved and all that kind of thing. But if you don't do something with that belief, the Word says that you have to confess with your mouth. You have to believe in your heart, which is what most people call faith. But if you don't do something with it, faith doesn't save you. You have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and claim Him as your personal Savior. Faith without works is nothing. It does nothing. Sometimes people think that uh, doing works saves them. Works without faith doesn't do anything. Works don't produce faith or good works. Good works don't produce faith, but faith produces good works. See the difference? It's the flip side. The, the world has tried to teach everybody to that faith is just understanding something or just believing in something without doing anything with it. That may be faith. But if it doesn't do something, it's, it's worthless. What, what good does it do you? It doesn't do any. But grace is available to everybody through faith that is demonstrated by works. Understand? I don't quite know how, know how else to say that. I, I don't feel like I'm really getting it across well, but I'm at a loss to say how else to say it. So, how do you get enough faith to produce works? How does that happen? You know, faith, just sitting on your faith and doing nothing is, is unprofitable. But how do you believe enough? How do you have enough faith to actually do something with it? The answer is, Faith develops enough to do something with it through intimacy. To get to, to have enough faith in what you read or study, you have, to get an, you have to be intimate with God. You have to be intimate with the Holy Spirit. You have to gain insight through what the Holy Spirit teaches you as you study the Word and sit under the Word. I've said it so many times, People might, might think it's my creed or something, but there is no substitute for sitting under the preached word on a consistent basis. You know, you can pray till you're blue in the face. You can give tithes, you can give offerings, you can do all those things, but none of that produces the knowledge and the, and the depth of knowledge that helps you to become intimate with the Lord Jesus Christ through the leadership of his spirit. Until you can get to the place where you can understand the tenets of Christianity and be able to uh, hear the still small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you as you seek him, until you get to that place, you'll never develop your faith strongly enough to be able to do the works that are associated with it. <clears throat> I 
I left out a definition of faith that I wanted to read. And this is Lee Dunning definition of faith. It's believing God's word enough that you're willing to do something with it. That you're willing to act upon what you know of God's word. Knowing is not enough. The world knows about God. The world knows about Jesus Christ. But they don't act upon it to become saved and then act upon it enough to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit in their lives. You must get intimate enough with God to be able to truly hear His voice, the voice of His Spirit, speaking inside you. Now, some people have heard uh, audible voices of God speaking to them. And I don't belittle that at all. I believe it has happened. I have to tell you, it's never happened to me. But I hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, and I endeavor to follow it. I'm going to tell you a little story on, on me from... Most of you know that Sarah and I just took a recent three-week road trip through all the western states and visiting family and friends. and uh, Had a wonderful time. Uh, pastors were gracious enough to give us three weeks off to be able to take that trip, and it was a wonderful time. But I'm going to tell you about an incident that took place when we were in Seattle visiting our son and daughter-in-law out there. We had been on the road already for about 10 days, and the car, <laughs> it was filthy, inside and out. You know, you're living out of a car for 10 days, you know, things get pretty ripe. So I decided that I was going to take the car to a car wash and get it washed and clean out the inside of it and all that so it was might even smell better. So I had kind of procrastinated doing it until about, I guess it was 4.30, quarter to 5, right? 4.30, quarter to 5, and anybody that's ever been in Seattle... The traffic is horrendous, especially <laughs> between 4 o'clock and 6.30. So I had heard the Holy Spirit earlier in the day saying, you need to go get that done. You know, he talks to me pretty plain. He doesn't, he doesn't beat around the bush at all. He just And we were doing some things and having some fellowship, and I just didn't listen also spoke to my wife and she told me but I still didn't listen how many of you know your wife is a good representation of the Holy Spirit in your life anybody who's been married more than 10 minutes should understand that so I set out about a quarter to five to go to this and remember I've not driven in Seattle only one time ever before. And our car has navigation, and so I plugged in the, the information for the car wash. And I was on my way, and traffic was really, really bad. And so when it got me to where the car wash was, it brought me in a way that I couldn't turn into the car wash. 
there was no left turn there. So I had to go past it and come around and, you know, just meander around. By then, they were tell the navigation was telling me to make U-turns and all that kind of stuff, you know, which you can't do. <clears throat> but it finally got me there. So I got the car washed, got all vacuum cleaned up inside, and then I started to go back. And I'm, again, I'm using the navigation to do it. Well, there's this, this bridge that goes over part of the Puget Sound. Well, the area between the Puget Sound and, and uh, uh, this lake. Can't think, Lake Washington. And there are only a few ways to get from one side of that area to the other side because Seattle is surrounded by water all the way around. So you have to have bridges. So I was moving along just right and the, and the navigation told me to make a left turn. But they didn't tell me enough for me. I was in the right lane and they didn't tell me early enough to get over into the left turn lane. And so I had to go across that bridge. Well, when I got to the other side of the bridge, the line to come back across the bridge was a mile and a half long. Bumper to bumper, moving just a little bit, a little bit, and it's a drawbridge. Whenever a, a, a boat goes by that's too tall to go under it, they open the drawbridge. And when they, when they do that, everything stops. Well, I'm not even going to go into the rest of the story. But it ended up, it took me an hour and a half, wasn't it? I called Sarah to tell her what was going on and that I'd be a while. And it took me an hour and a half to get from that car wash back to my son's house, which should have been a 15-minute trip. All because I didn't listen to that still small voice in my spirit. So it's really important to develop, you know, that's a small thing, you know, it's not a big deal. But that same spirit that wants to help you in the big things wants to help you in the small things too. And if you listen to him in the small things, it'll be easier to hear him in the big things. And that can only come through intimacy. So there, your faith is a tool. And faith connects us to God's ability. So I want to give you, I want to give you seven things that you need to know in order to experience the God kind of faith. And you can only know these things by being saved and having a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. One, know the integrity of God's Word. Know the integrity of God's Word. And you can't just think you know. You've got to know that you know that God's Word is true and that you believe that Word enough to have the faith to act on it. <clears throat> Hebrews 4.12, I'm, I'm going to go through some scriptures again with you, and I'm just going to read them, so you probably won't have time to go to them, but write down the address. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You have to know that God's word has integrity. Number two, know the reality of our redemption in Christ Jesus. Know the reality of our redemption in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He has delivered us 
from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. You know, if you don't recognize that you've been redeemed, if you don't recognize that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, you won't have the confidence that you have to have to believe that you hear God and to have the confidence to act on what you hear. You have to know that you're redeemed. Three, know the reality of the new creation. Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the good works that we're able to do through faith in Christ Jesus and Father God. Four, Know that we are the righteousness of God through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is a life verse for me. Changed my life when I really understood this verse. For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that is, in Jesus Christ. For Christians, in my opinion, that's one of the most important verses in the Bible. Five, recognize the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Recognize the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. First John chapter 4, verse 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he that's in the world. We are of God, and we have to recognize that because he's in us, his Holy Spirit is in us. We're stronger than the world. First Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? We have to recognize that we are the body of Christ. Together, we're the body of Christ. And we're only the body of Christ because of Christ who lives in us. God who lives in us through the, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's ours. Next, know that fellowship with the Father is real. 1 John 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ who manifests us in us on a daily basis by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit speaking to us. That's still small voice. You know, this is kind of a little bunny trail, but I'm going to take it anyway because i got time. Um, most of us don't hear directly from God. We hear from his Holy Spirit. Most of us don't hear directly from Jesus Christ. We hear from the Holy Spirit. We see all three of them in his word, and we believe his word, and we take that within ourselves, and we use it to develop our faith. But most of us hear through the Holy Spirit. And there's no substitute from understanding that and acting upon it when you hear it. It's vital. You have to believe that that fellowship that's inside you is real. Uh, six, 
<clears throat> excuse me, understand the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. And we do have authority in the name of Jesus. <clears throat> John 14, verse 13 and 14. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. <clears throat> Can I have some water, please? kind of hard on this mic thing. Is it there? Okay. Where was I? <clears throat> John 14, 13, 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. It's important, I think, for us to understand <clears throat> that we don't have authority in ourselves. We have authority in us through the authority that lives inside of us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And you know, authority really has no value unless you exercise it. Some of y'all are looking at me like a calf looking at a new gate. <clears throat> you have to exercise the authority that you have in your spirit through the leadership of the Holy Spirit to take authority over the devil and all of his traps and all of his influences and over the natural circumstances that you find yourself in. And we have the authority to do that, but here again... Authority is no good unless you exercise it. Okay. Uh, number seven. We develop the God kind of faith by, number one, spending time in the Word. Uh, probably all of us don't spend as much time in the Word as we should. But from my personal standpoint developed a habit many years ago I won't say how many of first thing in the morning after you get up uh, Sarah and I both spend some time in the word sometimes it's 20 minutes sometimes it's a half hour sometimes it's more sometimes it's less but we have a habit of spending time in the word first thing in the morning and that has proven to me, and I'm sure to my wife Sarah too, to be one of the most valuable things that I do on a daily basis to help me through the day. And I know I don't look like it, but sometimes I have trouble during the day. I know it doesn't happen to any of you, but sometimes I do. And the foundation that's built on spending that time in the Word helps me to make the decisions that I make throughout the day. Now, I'm not 
I don't say that to make you think that I make these great grandiose decisions all the time. I'm talking about the small decisions that you make every day. We all make hundreds of uh, decisions every day, or choices, if you want to call them choices. And like the choice that I made about the, the, uh, the uh, car wash place, that was a choice. And it cost me because I didn't listen to the Holy Spirit and then didn't exercise the authority that I had. Um, number two, by sitting under the teaching of the Word on a consistent basis. And the word consistent is really important. You know, if you come to church once a week or once a month or once every three or four months, chances are that unless you are listening to a truly dynamic speaker that can penetrate the armor around your heart, you're not going to get much out of it. And here again, I can testify that that's the truth because for years I went sporadically and as a result I never grew in the word or in my spirit. So there's no substitute for that. It has to be consistent. As much as you can, you need to be in church every time the church has a service or every time there's preaching or any time there's studying the word in a Bible study or whatever. Every opportunity that you have you need to be sitting under the word. Number two, uh, uh, next is praying in the spirit. If you'll turn to Jude. Now I can't find it. I know it's in here. There it is. Jude 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. There's only one chapter. But you, beloved, and in place of beloved, I put my name there. Because I'm beloved. God loves me. So because he loves me, I'm beloved. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. We need to pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, there's all kinds of controversy through the church about what that means, about what praying in the Spirit is. And here again, I can only testify from personal experience. To me, it's letting my mind go dormant, my thought processes go dormant, and speaking in whatever syllables come to my spirit. And over the process of that, God's Spirit speaks to my spirit, and my spirit then speaks to my mind. Does that make sense? That's my definition of that term, praying in the Spirit. And I can tell you that praying in the Spirit has saved me from making a lot of really bad decisions over the course of my time with Jesus. <clears throat> uh, and then also by meditating in the Word. Let's go to Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosper, prosperous, and then you will have good success. That's a promise. That's a promise. And again, I can testify that meditating in the Word has benefits that are not 
readily known. You have to experience to experience that to understand. You know, the world the world talks a lot about meditating, but what they're meditating on isn't good for them. What we meditate on in a word will build us up in our spirit and give us intimacy and relationship with God. And then, faith only works by understanding God's love for us and believing in His love enough to do what His word says I can do. Romans 8, 38 and 39. And I'm finishing up with this. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us. And the grace that's available to us is a, is a, is a demonstration of God's love for us. But we have to remember that the love that he has for us is only available to us through faith. And not faith that just sits dormant, but faith that works. It's available to all of us. Now,